Judas, but also the hypocrisy of other biblical characters and even ourselves. A hypocrite is one who pretends to be someone who he is not. A hypocrite is an actor who puts on a show of piety or a show of compassion or a show of self-sacrifice for the purpose of self-glorification, not for the purpose of glorifying God. Of course, Judas was the quintessential hypocrite. He was the prototypical pretender, the greatest of all phonies. For three years, he posed as a disciple of Christ, but ultimately, in his heart, he was hostile to the very truths he claimed to believe, and no doubt even taught to others. But his ultimate allegiance was to himself, not to Christ. Though he enjoyed the same tender care and compassion as the other disciples, he was completely ruled by a heart of, of greed and power and prestige. He was planning on acquiring all of these things when the Messiah established his kingdom. And like all hypocrites, Judas was motivated by self-will for the purpose of self-promotion. He was a very skilled hypocrite. Think about it. None of the others even suspected him. He had everyone fooled. Even though he was the treasurer of the group, nobody saw his greed. Like many imposters in the church today who pose as believers, he had fooled everyone but Jesus. Judas was so calloused in his hatred of Christ. He was so proficient in his masquerade that Matthew says that all of the disciples responded to the Lord's chilling announcement that someone was going to betray him by saying, Lord, is it I? And even, even Judah said, is it I? What an example of the insanity of sin. Solomon described this briefly when he says, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Amazing, isn't it? Judas knew that Jesus knew about his plan to betray him. Jesus had made that clear in other statements. But he was so hardened in his hypocrisy, and he hated Christ so much he just didn't care. The only reason he chimed in with the other disciples to say, is it I, Rabbi, was to keep up an appearance of being like everyone else. Well, this morning I wish to give you a list of five dangers of hypocrisy. Certainly there are many, but I'd like to focus on five this morning. Examples taken from the life of Judas and other characters in Scripture. The first danger, number one, is hypocrisy can thrive in any soil. Hypocrisy can thrive in any soil. By this I mean hypocrisy can thrive not only in an apostate church, but also in a godly church. To be sure, all false religion is hypocrisy. It 
pretends to offer eternal life, but it leads to eternal death. And the form of Judaism that Jesus confronted there in the first century was thoroughly apostate, thoroughly hypocritical. But think about it. Jesus walked with Christ for three years. He had intimate contact with the Son of God. He had a favored position along with 11 other men. He observed and experienced perfect love. He witnessed the perfections of Christ, not only in public, but also in private. He was taught the Word of God by the very Word made flesh. Imagine what that would have been like. He witnessed all of these astounding miracles, and yet he remained unmoved. In fact, he became even more skilled in his ability to deceive others. Beloved, a hypocrite can thrive in any soil, a godly church as well as an ungodly church. In fact, I would submit to you that the more Christ-honoring the church, the more skilled the hypocrite. Because there exists in a Christ-honoring church more spirit-empowered discernment, more spiritually mature believers. Therefore, the pretender must become even more clever in his deceptions. Think about it. It would be much harder to pretend to be a neurosurgeon at Vanderbilt University Medical Center than it would be at a NASCAR race. Worse yet, the pretender will unwittingly use his Christ-honoring church as part of his cover-up because it makes him look all the better in his own eyes and in the eyes of others that he views as spiritually inferior. It's easy to be a phony Christian in a man-centered church where God and his word is held in low esteem, and as a result, most of the people are living in hypocrisy. There's no real standard of godliness. There's no spiritual or doctrinal discernment, but not so in a God-centered church. So the hypocrite must up his game. Now, some are going to be easy to spot. Others will require more time. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, the sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Now, make no mistake, truth and time will walk hand in hand, but the exposure of a hypocrite will occur more quickly in a spiritually mature church. Nevertheless, it will exist there, as we will see. Obviously, Jesus saw right through Judas, even though he had everyone else fooled. And part of that, I believe, was also attributed to the fact that the disciples did not yet possess the indwelling Spirit of God. For example, they would not have had the gift of discernment, as we read about in in 1 Corinthians 12, the gift that is really the Spirit's watchdog uh, in the church that the Spirit of, of God empowered 
certain people and still does with the ability to, to recognize very quickly uh, what the Bible calls lying spirits. These are people that are able to spot clever counterfeits, spot imposters that would deceive most other believers. Those with the gift of discernment can quickly spot a counterfeit teacher or a spiritual pretender. In 1 Corinthians 6, 5, we read about the wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren and so forth. Now, after Pentecost, the Spirit of God uh, came and, and took up residence in every true believer and gave every believer some measure of, of, of spiritual gifts, supernatural endowments, uh, divine provisions to the church for uh, the protection and edification of the church and even for the evangelization of the world. So after the Spirit came upon the saints at Pentecost, all believers became more discerning, especially those that had a specific gift of, of discernment, like the 12 apostles later on. But again, like Judas, a hypocrite can thrive in any environment and where Christ even where Christ is there in the midst of them. Now, I want to make a careful distinction. There are hypocrites that are clearly unbelievers, like Judas. Uh, some are unwitting. Some are, are very witting. Some know that they're just putting on a show. They're just con artists. And others are unbelievers that are self-deceived. They're part of false religious systems or whatever. Uh, they're the people described, for example, in Matthew 7. But then there are believers who, at times, will act the hypocrite. And frankly, we must all guard our hearts against this very thing. Paul warns us as believers in Romans 12:9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. You see, hypocrisy is the antithesis of love. I might add that as a pastor, over the years of ministry, when I look upon the church, I see that the greatest realm of hypocrisy among true believers is in this area of love. Hypocrisy tends to exalt petty preferences over sincere love for the brethren. Hypocrisy is easily offended. It is unforgiving. It is demanding and quick to forsake friends and family. I'm constantly amazed at how little it takes for some people to disappear from a marriage. For some people that call themselves Christians and perhaps are to suddenly abandon their family, to leave their church family, to some even jettison their faith, which proves they were never saved to begin with, proving that their love was not without hypocrisy. They are like the person described in Proverbs 18.1, he who separates himself seeks his own desire he quarrels against all sound wisdom. We are to love purely and sincerely, not, not to just put on a show to make ourselves look good, nor are we to ignore or even resent other believers that we may not agree with, while at the same time calling ourselves followers of Christ. 
You want to ask yourself, what about me? Would people describe me, those people that know me best, as one who is unselfish and self-giving, willfully devoted to others, willing to pay whatever personal price necessary to care for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I love my neighbor as myself? Or am I the type of person that will quickly abandon my neighbor when I don't agree with them? Peter described the same kind of unfeigned, genuine love when he admonishes all believers in 1 Peter 1.22, he says this, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Likewise, in 1 Peter 4.8, he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. You see, again, love without hypocrisy is, is pure. It is selfless. And I might add, it is essential for supernatural living. So much so that John declares in 1 John three fourteen, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Unloving Self-centered people who show no evidence of agape love really have no basis to make their claim of being a Christian. Often, I've noticed they are very sad people. They tend to be sour and sullen. They seldom smile. It's interesting, having taught by example a wonderful lesson on humility by washing the disciples' feet, followed by an explanation of what he had done, Jesus concluded with an admonition in John thirteen seventeen. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Happy if you do them. You show me a, a sour, sullen Christian, and I'll show you an arrogant Christian that has not learned to love without hypocrisy. So even believers can be hypocritical at times. But unlike an unbeliever, it will not be the dominating and perpetual characteristic of his or her life, thanks to the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which can at times be very painful. We can be like Peter and Barnabas and the Jewish believers in Antioch, described in Galatians 2, verses 11 and following. They were carried away with their hypocrisy, Paul tells us. They were comfortable eating with the Gentiles until the self-righteous, hypocritical Judaizers showed up. And then all of a sudden, they no longer practiced what they preached. They changed their tune because they were afraid of them and they affirmed the very dietary restrictions they knew God had abolished. Very quickly, they denied the gospel of grace they truly believed. And in an effort to be popular, they embraced the hypocrites who promoted a heretical doctrine. So, folks, we need to be on guard ourselves. We can all become chameleon Christians. I can't tell you the number of times I've 
had to deal with this in my own heart. When I've been tempted to buy into some kind of fad or some kind of movement or to avoid dealing forthrightly with someone or some group, maybe even within the church, because I don't want to deal with the conflict, and yet I know all along that it needs to be dealt with. So we have to choose who we will serve. Are we going to serve the Lord, or are we going to serve ourselves? Are we going to fear God, or are we going to fear man? Folks, God hates hypocrisy, especially in his church. Do you remember what happened with Ananias and Sapphira? God is serious about the purity of his church. What about the great church at Ephesus in Acts 20? Paul warned the elders that, quote, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. But even with that warning, that great church where Paul ministered for three years, followed by Timothy and Tychicus and, 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 and even the Apostle John, a church that God praised for so many things in Revelation 2, we see that hypocrisy began to creep into their hearts, causing the Lord to say, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. You see, their service to the Lord had become a greater priority than their intimate fellowship with him. So hypocrisy can thrive in any soil. Number two, hypocrisy breeds increasingly worse sins. Now, we all know this. Sin always goes from bad to worse. It never goes the other direction. Hypocrisy is like a cancer that weakens the entire body. It gradually sears the conscience and makes us susceptible to greater and more destructive sins. Let's think of this first in the lives of unbelievers. Consider Judas. When he originally chose to follow G Jesus, like the others, according to Luke 5.11, he left everything and followed him. He wanted to be on the ground floor of the kingdom. He thought Jesus was the Messiah. And though he pretended to worship and serve Christ, he was ultimately ruled by ambition and self-promotion, which led to greed and so forth. And as time went on, we can see that he became increasingly disillusioned, seeing that the kingdom is not going to be established here. He wasn't getting his own way, so he went from using Jesus to hating Jesus, and then from hating Jesus to killing Jesus. His hypocrisy gradually silenced his conscience. Consider the Pharisees. In Luke 12, 1, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, we all know what leaven is. You, you put it in bread dough. It permeates through a process of fermentation. And it's used in Scripture to symbolize the influence of, of corruption and defilement and sin. So Jesus is simply saying, Protect yourselves from the permeating, corrupting influence of this damning, hypocritical, false religious system. 
And we know from the New Testament record that the apostate Judaism espoused by the Pharisees resulted in all kinds of other forms of wickedness. Myriads of ridiculous rules that they came up with in their legalistic system. It fueled pride and abuse. Jesus said, you are lovers of money. They were even murderers. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You see, folks, the religious hypocrite is toxic, if I can put it that way. And false religion, which unfortunately is growing even within the ranks of evangelicalism, is radioactive. You need to stay away from those kinds of people. You need to remove them from the church. Get rid of their books. Don't watch them on television. Don't spend time trying to learn all of the details of their false religious system. Focus on the truth, and then you'll be able to easily spot the counterfeit. Don't study the counterfeit in order to know the truth. It's dangerous. In fact, Jude warns us to be very careful when dealing with these type of hypocrites. He tells us in verse 23 to hate even the garment polluted by the flesh. This literally refers to a person's underwear that is stained by bodily elimination. Really gross. And he did that intentionally. To get us to understand this, you don't want to get that stuff on your skin. Likewise, you don't want the vile contamination of a false hypocritical religion to come in contact with your soul. The hypocrisy of heresy and the hypocrites that believe and teach these things is carcinogenic, if you will. It is satanic. Their influence will permeate your mind with damning lives and predispose the soul to every imaginable form of evil. We can see how hypocrisy breeds increasingly worse sins in 1 Corinthians 5. There, Paul, you will recall, insists that the Christians there in, in the church expel an incestuous offender from the church. And as he develops his arguments, he, he warns them by saying, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There Paul is reminding them of the reason why God asked the ancient Israelites to remove all of the leaven from their home at Passover. It's because that leaven symbolized the permeating influence of sin which defiles, which dishonors God, which prevents genuine worship, which forfeits divine blessings. And so he's saying, so now, like the ancient Israelites at Passover, the church must eliminate anything 
that defile so that we might observe the new Passover of the Lord's Supper with pure hearts and genuine worship. Beloved, I would submit to you that any church that fails to discipline sin and do all it can to maintain purity within the church opens itself up to the leaven of false worship, which is hypocrisy. This is also why Paul insisted in Galatians 5 that the saints expel the dangerous Judaizers who had infiltrated the church because what they taught was hypocrisy. Contrary to the gospel, in Galatians 5.9, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So indeed, hypocrisy breeds increasingly worse sins. And this will be true, by the way, in the life of a believer as well. Think of David, who concealed the lust in his heart. But he still pretended to be the godly king. And then he began to fuel the lust in his heart. And then he acted upon the lust in his heart. In his heart. While all along he's covering it up with his position and his religion. And then as you know, that lust eventually brought forth the act of adultery and even murder. Think of the hypocrisy of Peter's pride that preceded his fall when he denied Christ three times. Illustrations of this abound as we look at the Christian landscape. Consider the professing Christian who treats his wife like dirt but holds some office of leadership within the church. Just think where that life is going to go. Consider the Christian missionary woman who is unsubmissive to her husband and resents all authority that God has placed over her. Think of how that sin of hypocrisy is going to metastasize. Think of the Christian musician who craves the spotlight and loves to get up and to sing about Jesus and yet fuels his heart with pornography and other secret sins. We all know the end of that story. Well, the examples are endless. Folks, make no mistake, if the true believer doesn't confess and repent of hypocrisy in his or her life, he or she will pay a heavy price because we reap what we sow. Hypocrisy grieves and quenches the spirit. It renders man useless and fruitless in ministry. Eventually, we end up just operating in the flesh. It separates friends. It rips apart families. It destroys marriages. It causes divisions in churches. And on and on it goes. Because hypocrisy is the antithesis of love. It is the Frankenstein of pride and self-will. The third danger is this. Hypocrisy believes public piety outweighs secret sins. You see, the hypocrite tends to weigh his good deeds against the bad. And he will always make sure the scales of justice 
weigh heaviest with the good deeds that he does in public so as to offset or mitigate the secret sins, the seriousness and consequences of those things that nobody else sees but God. And this not only fools others, but unfortunately it silences the conscience of the hypocrite. We see this illustrated in John 12. You will recall Judas feigned outrage over the profligate waste of money when Mary anointed Jesus' feet with the costly perfume. Wanting to appear philanthropic, he says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Well, Judas couldn't have cared less about the poor. But it sounded good. It made him look good. Disillusioned with Jesus and now aware that he had wasted three years of his life, he wanted the money for himself. He knew the end was close. Ah, but his outrage over such a waste of money really concealed those secret sins in his heart. Even to himself. We see how public piety outweighs secret sins in the hypocrites exposed in Luke 11. There we read in beginning in verse 39, Jesus says, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. We see this as well in Luke chapter 16, where Jesus teaches about the proper attitude we are to have toward money and wealth, being good stewards of that which is given us. And in verse 14 we read, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. You see, the Pharisees believed that their own outward goodness justified them. And of course, this was reinforced by all of the external things that they did, including the religious garb they wore to signal to everyone else that they were the spiritually elite, the most noble, the most erudite the most acceptable in God's eyes. By the way, religious people wearing ostentatious, flamboyant garb is always a sure sign of the hypocrisy of false religion. He says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And it's so sad, isn't it? Their public piety blinded them to their secret sins in their heart. And in our Lord's parable in Luke 18, Jesus described this when he says, 
the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. And because of their hypocrisy, Jesus excoriated them, saying in Matthew 23, verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Contrast this with Matthew 5, where Jesus describes the heart attitude of true believers in what is called the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That person's going to be happy. Blessed are those who mourn, the idea of mourning over their sin. Blessed are the meek, those who have that spirit-empowered gentleness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is the opposite of the self-righteous hypocrite who seeks a righteousness of his own rather than from God. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted, and so forth. And then he goes on to use all of this as a stark contrast to the hypocritical Pharisees, those who are all sizzle but no steak, those who are all about show, not of the heart. The Pharisees' focus was strictly on external obedience, which therefore, in his mind, would soften the law's demands upon the heart. Jesus illustrates the error of this kind of thinking by saying that, that anger is tantamount to murder. He goes on to talk about how if you lust in your heart, you have committed adultery and so forth. But the hypocrite has deceived himself into thinking that his public religion is all that matters. And what he will do is surround himself with other people who would agree with this and therefore not see through his masquerade. And also, as we see in Scripture, and it's certainly had been my experience, when this is exposed, a person tends to explode in anger as did the Jewish leaders and even all of Israel. The hypocrite merely gives lip service to true worship. Isaiah 29, 13, Therefore the Lord said, These people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. Let me give you a fourth danger, and that is this. Hypocrisy sears the conscience. Hypocrisy sears the conscience and predisposes the soul against heartfelt repentance. Hypocrisy sears the conscience and predisposes the soul against heartfelt repentance. Judas is a classic example of this. Jesus gave him every opportunity to repent from his sin and place his faith in him. Three years of being in the presence of the Savior. Three years experiencing his love. And then in the upper room, Jesus washes his feet. And then says in Matthew 26, 24, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. 
And then, as I mentioned earlier, what does Judas do? He chimes in and imitates the astonishment of the others and says, Lord, is it I? And then we know, according to verse 25, that Jesus says to him privately, you have said it yourself. And yet Judas remained unmoved. And then we witness Jesus' final gesture of love when he honored Judas by handing him the morsel. But he remained unrepentant. He remained determined in his attempt to betray Jesus. In fact, Jesus' act of love actually hardened his resolve. His conscience was seared and his soul predisposed against heartfelt repentance. If you've ever tried to share the gospel with somebody caught up in some cult or some false religious system, you'll quickly encounter that seared conscience of hypocrisy and the utter impossibility of heartfelt repentance apart from some supernatural act of grace when the Spirit of God convicts them. Well, in the interest of time, let me give you one final danger. Hypocrisy will attack and abandon anyone who can see through its masquerade. Hypocrisy will attack and abandon anyone who can see through its masquerade. Consider the scribes and Pharisees who were apoplectic with rage at the very name of Jesus. Every time Jesus got around them, they knew that he could see right through them. And the New Testament record reveals that Jesus reserved his most, most scathing rebukes for their hypocrisy. But rather than humbling themselves in genuine brokenness and repentance, they schemed to kill him. You see, the hypocrite is always on duty to avoid detection. Therefore, he is going to attack and even abandon anyone that might unmask him. We see this with Judas and his hatred of Jesus who was unmasking him. And think about it. Not only did Judas betray Jesus, he betrayed his fellow disciples. He was well aware of the Sanhedrin's edict that anyone who knew the whereabouts of Jesus was to report to them. And he knew that his betrayal would place his companions in harm's way, but it just didn't matter. And he also knew that they would soon discover his true identity, that he was a pretender, that he was a treacherous traitor, so he had no use for them. Hypocrites will quickly abandon anyone who sees through their masquerade. And we might ask, how do you deal with this kind of person? And scripture makes it clear we deal with it, we deal with them with loving forthrightness. John understood this. You will recall how he dealt with the hypocrisy of Diotrephes in 3 John. Remember that guy? An arrogant man who verbally slandered the apostle, who maliciously accused the apostle of untrue things, and excluded anyone from the assembly that dared challenge his authority. 
Once again, hypocrisy is the Frankenstein of pride and self-will. And it is a sin that requires immediate, aggressive, and public attention. In order to confront this, John says this in his public letter in verse 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall and looked at Diotrephes when they read this and he heard this? He loves to be first among them. First, by the way, carries the idea of someone who is self-centered and selfish and self-serving and so forth. This guy was a self-promoting demagogue. demagogue. He, he served no one, but he wanted everyone to bow to him. I might add that this kind of person exists in every church. Sometimes they're in leadership, sometimes they're not. So John exercises his apostolic authority and he says in verse 10, For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked, with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, John says, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God, the one who does evil has not seen God. This is the factious man of Titus 2, verses 10 and 11. The factious man is a man that is self-willed and unsubmissive, divisive, and so forth. There, Paul says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Sadly, because of the five characteristics of hypocrisy that we've examined this morning, it's my experience that even the most loving, gentle confrontation with this kind of a person ends up going bad. Very seldom do they truly receive it well and begin to deal with their heart. Most of the time they get mad rather than sad. They get defensive and end up leaving the church. Very sad for them, however I might add, ultimately good for the church. These kinds of folks always exist in the church, by the way. In the church in Corinth, which was torn by divisions, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen that there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Paul is simply saying that these kinds of people will always exist in the church. Why? Because the hypocrisy of worldliness and disobedience manifested in them that causes these kind of divisions will serve as a stark contrast to the humble love and harmony of those who are approved. That's the point. Well, in summary, folks, hypocrisy can thrive in any soil. Hypocrisy breeds increasingly worse sins. Hypocrisy believes public piety outweighs secret sins. Hypocrisy sears the conscience and predisposes the soul against heartfelt repentance. 
And finally, hypocrisy will attack and abandon anyone who can see through its masquerade. Now, some believers might say, my pastor, I'm ashamed to say you've described me at times. Hey, I've described myself at times. You might say, I I wonder if I'm even saved. Well, may I offer you a word of encouragement? If you're truly ashamed, (laughs) if you truly wish this were not so and you truly want to do, do something about it, the very fact that you see this, the very fact that you grieve over it, the fact that you mourn over your sin and hunger and thirst for righteousness and long to have sweet fellowship with the Lord proves that the Spirit of God is at work in you. Because I can assure you, assure you on the basis of Scripture and many years of dealing with hypocrites, the hypocrite will feel no such thing. He will feel no such conviction. And if the Spirit is convicting you, then I would humbly say, confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and then find someone you trust who will help you be accountable, repent of it, and then celebrate the glorious grace of God in the gospel. And then I would encourage you to meditate on the marks of a true Christian that we read earlier. And I'm going to close with this this morning. Here are the traits of a spirit-filled life in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it, it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these truths. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will search us to see if there be any wicked way in us. And Lord, wherever there is, I pray that you will bring such overwhelming conviction that by your grace, we will confess and repent And enjoy the sweet fellowship that belongs to all those who live lives of integrity. So Lord, we commit these great truths to you to do your work in each heart. That they might bear much fruit. That in all things you might have the preeminence. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.